Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much, uh, Rob. Uh, and thanks to all of you for joining us. When uh, Rob and I decided some months ago to dedicate this February's presidential series to the presidency of Andrew Johnson, the first president in history to be impeached, we of course could have no idea that this talk this morning would take place on the morning after the second impeachment trial of President Trump, but so we find ourselves today. So a talk that would have been riveting at any time is especially so this morning. We're very pleased to have with us as our first speaker in the series, noted journalist and author, Howard Means, as you heard. Earlier in his career, Howard served as a senior writer for and later as the senior editor of the Washingtonian Magazine. He also served for a number of years as uh, a member of the editorial board of the Orlando Sentinel, and he was also an op-ed columnist for the King Feature Syndicate. His books cover a wide range of topics, among them a biography of Colin Powell, a book on swimming, a book about the Kent State Massacre, a book titled Money and Power, The History of Business, and his most recent book, Johnny Appleseed, The Man, The Myth, and The American Story. Of course, this morning, we're talking about the book titled The Avenger Takes His Place, Andrew Johnson, and the 45 Days That Changed the Nation. With that, please join me in welcoming Howard Means. Howard, over to you. Ah, thank you. Thrilled to be here. Very nice of you to have me. Uh, Clark was asking me earlier why I bothered to write a book about Andrew Johnson. Uh, and I got to thinking, I've been thinking about it some since I've been preparing for this. And I, be, I became interested during my years as a magazine journalist uh, in people who, in events that become sort of, that, that become lost in their own mythology. And, uh, and I wanted to find out more about, I, I have a sort of inherent interest in failed presidencies. Uh, I, I, I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I went to James Buchanan Elementary School. And uh, I lived half a block from Buchanan's home at Wheatland in Lancaster. So uh, from, a from childhood, I guess, I've had uh, an interest in failed presidencies. Johnson, so I started looking into Johnson and the more I looked into him, the more the window that fascinated me was the 45 days between uh, Lincoln's assassination and when Johnson declared the terms of peace. And so that's, the book is itself, uh, The Avenger Takes His Place, is a complete biography, but with the heavy emphasis on those 45 days. Um, and just, just to start off, a quote from the New York Times, and this is, this is from March 4, I think this, let me check my notes, not, not March 4, 1861. The Times was not yet uh, the, gray, the great gray lady of journalism, but it had been around 10 years, its opinion mattered. And on March 4th of 1861, this is what it said about Andrew Johnson. His name is in every mouth today, and he is freely applauded as the greatest man of the age. Imagine that, Andrew Johnson. Um, and so the question, I, I, I ran across that, and that really cemented my desire to write this book. Uh, it's such a far cry from the Andy Johnson that comes down to us today. And whenever I think of that Andy Johnson, I think of the National Portrait Gallery. Um, some of you may know it, it's the Smithsonian's building up off, off of the uh, mall campus. And there is a hall of presidents up there. Every president has a portrait um, and it's kind of an L-shaped thing or maybe even U-shaped now. 
but there's there's a there's a little corner of it which I think of as the as the boulevard of broken presidencies that has three portraits: Andy Johnson's, uh, James Buchanan's, and Franklin Pierce. And they're stuck off in this corner. You have to work very hard to find them. So the question is, what went wrong with that presidency? How did he end up in the boulevard of, of broken presidency? And who really is this, to me, the most enigmatic of presidents in many ways? Well, let's start at the beginning. With the exception of the early planter presidents and I guess a couple of Roosevelt's, Bush 41 and 43, Jack Kennedy and a few others, presidents like to stress their humble origins. Um, but no president, no American president out humbles Andy Johnson. Um, Johnson was born in Raleigh, North Carolina in December 1808. He was three when his father leapt in. His father was a tavern keeper. He was three when his father leapt into a pond to save some boaters that had overturned. Uh, the boaters lived. Uh, the father died of exposure uh, uh, later that month. I think that was in March. Um, Johnson's mother remarried eventually, but she remarried into poverty and the family never escaped it. Andy Johnson never had a day of schooling. At nine, he was apprenticed to a tailor named Selby. And in theory, he was Selby's property for the next, uh, until he was 21 years old. Five years into apprenticeship, uh, Johnson took off running with his brother, Willie. And I think was one other guy, two other boys took off running. And Selby put out a, a advertised reward of $10 for Johnson's return, about $250, $200 in, 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 a, in current currency, which is a big award. But, uh, but Johnson was never brought to, brought to bay. On the run, he plied the trade he'd learned from Selby. He became a tailor. Uh, and he worked out of, out of shacks, uh, shacks with wooden floors. Uh, and he earned forever after that among the highborn uh, the ugly epithet, a mudsill tailor. His meanderings finally brought him to Greenville, Tennessee when he was 18. And there he met and married poor and fatherless, Eliza McCardle, also 18. Uh, and the next year, not yet 20, and still being taught to read and write by his wife, he was elected an alderman in Greenville. Uh, from uh, six years later, he became mayor of Greenville, in 1842, he was elected to the, I'm sorry, from there he moved on to the Tennessee legislature. In 1842, he was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives. In 1858, he was elected to the Senate in Tennessee. And I, we know from a fellow Tennessean, uh, Oliver Temple Perry. Oh, I'm sorry, let me, let me, let me back up a moment. I, I should say that by the time he became a, a state legislator and a national legislature, uh, he had escaped the poverty of his childhood. Uh, prosperity followed on the heels of his political success. He sold his tailor business, and it was no longer a mudsill uh, tailor shop. Invested in railroad stocks, started a newspaper to advance his political career. So politics was on his mind from an early age. We know from a fellow Tennessean, Oliver, Oliver Temple Perry, who wrote a very nice long uh, remembrance of, of Johnson, that Johnson stood five foot 10. He weighed about 175 pounds. He was a man of superior physical strength. I have a photograph of him I'll try to show on the screen here. A photograph, uh, this is by, I'm almost certain by Matthew Brady. I meant to check that, but I didn't. And that is Johnson to a T right there. The look, that scowl, everything about him. Um, Johnson had, uh, Johnson didn't have humor in his repertoire of emotions. Uh, he seldom smiled. Uh, oh, 
if you look right above the eyes, the brows, everybody used to comment on those brows. Uh, and this is what Perry, Oliver Perry wrote about him. Above his eyes at the point where phrenologists locate the reasoning faculties were two remarkable bumps. On the whole, nature had stamped him a, uh, had stamped him a remarkable man. Uh, and so we, come, we have this cartoon image of him. I guess that's what I was trying to break through with this cartoon image of the president who was impeached and almost removed. It's no wonder Lincoln named him military governor of Eastern Tennessee not long after the war began. Johnson, in fact, had stumped for, uh, had stumped for Breckinridge, the Democratic candidate, in the 1960 election. But that December of 1860, uh, he went all in, I'm sorry, of 1860, 1860, I'm sorry. He went all in for the union. Um, he, uh, he began throwing the word treason around on the Senate floor. Uh, and for the most part, the Northern press loved it. That's really what's behind the quote, the New York Times quote I started this with. What's more, Johnson was available and on familiar terrain, an important terrain. First of all, with Tennessee's secession, he had no state left to represent. Holding Eastern Tennessee was also of critical importance to the Union because it was, it was, it was central to supply lines to the deeper South. Johnson was also bullheaded and fearless. He was a man made for this kind of work and he needed to be. He was widely considered a traitor to the South, obviously. Um, and uh, before uh, Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, uh, assigned Johnson to be the military governor of Tennessee, he was warned by one of his aides that if Johnson were to even were, were to reappear in Tennessee, that he was almost certain to be killed. By 1866, Stanton, still secretary, would have preferred that Lincoln, I mean, that Johnson had been killed at that point. Uh, he fervently wished that had happened. Uh, by then, the qualities that were Johnson's strength as a military governor were destroying his presidency, but that really gets ahead of the story. If it was little wonder that Johnson Lincoln made him military, got Johnson military governor of a key Southern toehold. It was even less of a surprise in some ways when the rail splitter asked the Mudsill Taylor to be his running mate in 1864. Johnson Lincoln feared that he might not prevail. George McClellan had set himself up as the peace candidate for the Democratic nomination for president. And, uh, and he was appealing to, you know, appealing to Union voters, tired of the war, sick of the carnage, uh, ready to let the Confederacy go its own way. A loss at Gettysburg, the failure to take Atlanta, any number of other bad turns on the battlefield, they all would have strengthened McClellan's hand and his argument. And so to that end, Johnson uh, Lincoln uh, debuttress his own chances. The president announced the new coalition, the National Unity Party. And for a running mate, he crossed part party lines and reached out to the one national politician who might have placed himself at greater physical risk during the war than any other, Andy Johnson. But to put Johnson on the 1864 ticket, Lincoln had to get rid of his, had to give the bums rush to his own, his, to his first term vice president, who was Hannibal Hamlin of Maine. And there the story gets interesting, particularly if you believe as I do, that Washington DC is the world capital of passive aggressive behavior. Uh, Johnson arrived in DC on March 1, 1865. Uh, he was complaining of typhoid fever symptoms and this was just days in advance of the inauguration. Three days later, still feeling weak and waiting in Hannibal Hanneman's office for the inauguration festivities to begin, 
uh, Johnson asked for a host, that his host, uh, for a bracing tumbler of whiskey. Uh, and Hamlin uh, obliged. Um, Hamlin poured and then poured his soon to be successor two more bracing uh, tumblers of whiskey. A half an hour later, uh, and still vice president for a few more minutes, uh, uh, Hamlin delivered some decorous remarks and then turned the podium over to, uh, to uh, Andy Johnson. And Johnson launched into an oration so rambling and brimming with resentment that Navy, and, uh, that Navy Secretary Gideon Wells turned to Stanton and said, that man is either drunk or crazy. Whether or not Hamlin poured with uh, malevolent intent, I don't know, and I don't know it's ever been determined, but drunk was the right call. As politicians are wont to do in such embarrassments, uh, Johnson pled illness after the inauguration debacle, retired to the Silver Spring estate of Montgomery Blair, and didn't meet again until with Abraham Lincoln until six weeks later on the afternoon of Maundy Thursday, 1865. The next morning, Lincoln was dead and Andy Johnson assumed his office at maybe the most perilous crossroads in our nation's history. Let me, let's just, let me stop here for a moment and just consider what actually happened that night in the early morning of April 14 and 15, 1865, and where the nation stood at that moment. Uh, Lee had surrendered only a week earlier. Jefferson Davis was in flight headed towards Texas. Nearly 200,000 rebel soldiers remained under arms. 600,000 Americans North and South had died in the war. 10 times the fatalities in Vietnam. One in every 50 people in the land, equivalent to six million, more than 6 million people as a percentage of the American population today. The economy of the South was in ruins. Four million mostly illiterate slaves Wonder former slaves, freed slaves, wandered at streets and country roads, prison camps at Andersonville in Georgia, Cahaba in Alabama, elsewhere were disgorging unimaginable horrors. And John Wilkes Booth had just in fact turned the Republican presidency over to a lifetime Democrat who at the outset of the war had himself owned five slaves. Absolutely remarkable to think about. That of course was not Booth's intent. The plan was to assassinate Johnson as well, as long as along with Secretary of State William Seward and Ulysses Grant, to cut off not only the head of government, but also some of its key limbs. Booth and his co-conspirators nearly succeeded with Sherman, uh, uh, I mean with, uh, with Seward. Uh, he, was, he, was, he was attacked brutally at Blair House where he was living and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and knifed and, and barely survived. Uh, Grant by chance took off for Lincoln to visit his son, I mean for uh, Philadelphia to visit his son, and thus wasn't sitting beside Lincoln in Ford's theater that night. Uh, Johnson's uh, assassin, John, a guy named George Adzerod had been appointed to, had, uh, uh, to assassinate Johnson in his rooms at the Kirkwood, Kirkwood House Hotel on uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. And Azerod stopped to, for a drink on the way to steal his courage and ended up drinking his courage away. Uh, but do you think at LBJ swearing in ceremony, and I, the, you, everybody, there's this, it was, it, was, it was done aboard Air Force One at Love Field in Dallas uh, not long after Jack Kennedy was pronounced dead. And a devastated Jackie Kennedy stands hard by his president's side. It's a for people my age, it's an unforgettable image. Um, uh, despite the horror, the horrible events that just occurred, 
it was a promise that government would continue. Mary Todd Lincoln, under similar circumstances a century earlier, was having none of it. Booth had left a card for Andy Jackson, Andy Johnson, that is, uh, at, the, on, at the hotel on the afternoon of the assassination. The card read, don't wish to disturb you. Are you at home? Common sense would suggest that Booth was merely double checking on Johnson's location before sending the hapless Atzerod to slay him. But Mrs. Lincoln took the card as evidence of Andy Johnson's complicity in the plot. That miserable inebriate Johnson had cognizance of my husband's death, she wrote a friend. And to punish him, she removed, she refused to move out of the White House. Johnson's first month as president was spent living at Kirkwood House and working at a borrowed desk in the Treasury Department. Was Johnson a miserable inebriate? He was to be sure drunk at the worst of times, but the evidence of continued heavy tippling is scant at best. Um, Lincoln assured his treasury secretary uh, in, his, in his own homespun, homespun way after the inauguration debacle, uh, quote, I know Andy and he ain't no drunkard. The treasury secretary after monitoring Johnson himself for a few months agreed. Johnson's stump, speech, stump speeches had turned Johnson into a in, in moderate orator, but he was drunk on his own words, not on spirits. My own favorite uh, evaluation comes from a reporter who covered Johnson during his time as military governor. Quote, he drinks no more than a priest at his sacraments. I think we'll all agree that leaves some latitude for interpretation. While we're on first ladies, just let me just a bit of a side, the one who succeeded Mary Todd Lincoln, uh, Eliza McArdle Johnson, had no taste for Washington and no love for its highfalutin ways or its grand affairs. During the 16 years Andy Johnson served in the House and the Senate, Eliza managed to visit Washington exactly two times. She must have liked the number because during Johnson's four years in the White House, she came downstairs for formal events exactly two times, once for a children's birthday party and once to uh, greet the Queen of Hawaii. Enough said probably. For good or ill, with or without Mrs. Lincoln's blessing, Andrew Johnson was president, not honest Abe, and would be up to Johnson determined, at least initially, the terms of peace. In the South, Johnson's succession was not taken as a good omen. Uh, it was taken rather as a sure prophecy of the ill years ahead. Uh, Jefferson Davis used to refer to Johnson simply as the beast. My favorite one is a 17-year-old Emily LeConte writing her diary in Columbus, South Carolina, a few days after the murder, uh, uh, caught the spirit of the fallen Confederacy well. Hooray, she wrote, old Abraham Lincoln has been assassinated. Andy Johnson will succeed him. The rail sitter splitter seceded by the drunken ass. Herman Melville summed up the general spirit of expectation well on a two-liner that I use the title for my book. They have killed him, the Avenger. I'm sorry. They have killed him, the forgiver. The avenger takes his place. Vengeance, though, is exactly what many in the North, including the Republican radicals in the House and Senate, long for. And for them, Johnson uh, was just the ticket. Lincoln was going to let the South up easy. Andy Johnson had been vowing for four years to stretch some rope and rope some necks. Lincoln had died on Good Friday. That Easter Sunday, many a Northern pulpit rang out with the message that the nation had been providentially delivered to a president more ready to exact the retribution necessary after four years of war. Even Ralph Waldo Emerson jumped on board, wondering in his journal, quote, if it turns out on the unfolding of the web that Lincoln had reached the term 
that the heroic deliverer could no longer serve, that what remained to be done required new and uncommitted hands. Yet Senator Ben Wade of Ohio had no doubt about the matter. Lincoln's body was barely cold when before Wade crowed to Andy Johnson, by the gods, there will be no trouble now in running the government. Wade, as Johnson seemed to, had considerable rope in mind and many rebel necks to tighten it around. The desire for vengeance was, not, was certainly not universal in the North, it never is, obviously. Uh, Henry Ward Beecher, the most famous preacher of his, of his day, Harry Beecher Stowe's brother, a leader of the anti-slave movement, told us parishioners in Brooklyn that with the war's end, quote, now things are changed, the cause of the troubles removed, and it's become our privilege and duty, as it is my pleasure to plead for a general, a large measure of goodwill and love towards all men. Which would it be then, vengeance or, or, vengeance or mercy? For 45 days, that question captivated the barely united nation, uh, reunited nations, it's through the search for Booth, through Lincoln's long funeral cortege, through the grand review of the Union armies that crammed Washington with something on the order of 250,000 markers and onlookers, straight through March, May 29, when Johnson finally revealed his vision of the America, of the America that was to emerge from the slaughter. And it was basically Abraham Lincoln's plan to a T. Andy Johnson let him up easy. The rebel states would be required to assemble a convention of delegates, quote, loyal to the United States and to no other, to repeal the ordinance of secession, repudiate all war debt and outlaw slavery. As to who could vote for the delegates and in subsequent elections, Johnson set the bar at those eligible to vote in 1861. Individuals who had participated in the rebellion were to have all property rights restored except as to slaves in return for a simple oath to henceforth support, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States, an oath we've heard a lot about in the last 10, six days or so. 14 classes of individuals were exempted from this general amnesty, including civilian officials of the uh, Confederate governor, uh, government, I'm sorry, any rebel soldier educated at the public expense at West Point or Annapolis, pirates and raiders who had preyed on Union vessels, and all persons who had voluntarily participated in the Confederate cause and had estates valued in excess of $20,000 about 350,000 in current currency. Even to this accepted group though, Johnson offered an olive branch. Special application may be made to the president for pardon and such clemency will be liberally granted. Ben Wade, of course, were furious, was furious. No necks were to be stretched. Thaddeus Stevens was even more apoplectic. No black suffrage, no divvying up of the plantations among former slaves. Both men along with radical Republicans, the whole felt double-crossed but in fact, Andy Johnson were just being Andy Johnson. We know of at least one occasion when Johnson actually darkened the door of the place of worship. The Sunday when he sat himself down in Pew 54 at St. John's Church, Lafayette Square, as of all presidents before and after since uh, 1816. But Johnson in the whole had no use for religion and never joined a church. His Bible was the Constitution, the Union, his rock, and his salvation. And as Johnson read the Constitution, it made no provision for secession. The Confederacy, in fact, had never legally existed. And thus, the states which it pretended to consist had no need to be readmitted to the Union, since they had never left it. All that was needed was for the relationship between the rebel states and the abiding Union to be reset to pre-war conditions and to accept emancipation as ratified in the 13th Amendment. 
But Johnson was always about the union, always about the constitution, and always too finally about himself. Johnson yearned for respectability, but only on his own terms. He also seethed with class rage and seems never to have forgotten an insult. In his letter as he decried, quote, the illegitimate swaggering bastard scrub aristocracy the taunts and jeers I have been made to suffer, the money-loving, hypocritical, backbiting, Sunday-praying scoundrels of his own Greenville, Tennessee, and purse-proud Memphis, and highbrow Richmond, and wherever else he was still thought of as a mudsill tailor. Those are the ones who would have to appeal in person to him for clemency and amnesty, and come they did. From June to August 1865, just counting those from, uh, uh, oh, yeah. Oh, here we go. Here, I'm sorry, I lost my place. From June to August 1865, Johnson issued 5,300 par 5, pardons for residents of Alabama, uh, North Carolina, Virginia alone, almost 60 petitioners a day, all courteously received at the White House, all pardoned and all restored to their proper place in the Union. The president became a slave to the process, and almost all those he spared then returned to their home states and began passing the black codes that made a mockery of Johnson's entire amnesty process. Johnson's reconstruction was a disaster of all of his own making. It was always his way or the highway. And in his, this instance, the highway went right into a brick wall. Andy Johnson was all for the yeomen, the laborers who lived by the sweat of their brow. In Tennessee, he had backed everything to give them a leg up, a little fun, public education, state fairs. He was for all of them. As president, he wanted to turn down James Smithson's gift. Instead of a museum in the mall, he wanted to construct a national industrial school. For the black yeoman, though, there was no leg up. Just like runaway slaves, Johnson had had a price put on his head when he fled Selby the tailor. But he could never make that empathetic, empathetic, pathetic connection across the racial divide. That's really what he lacked, the ability to project beyond himself. Street smart as he was, Johnson was in some ways the easiest man in the world to set a trap for. And the Republicans did just that and baited it with Johnson's own inherited Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton. Stanton was more than a prominent member, a cabinet member. He was also the radical Republicans' very public mole within the Johnson and the cabinet, openly working with Ben Wade, Thaddeus Stevens, and others to undermine the president. Johnson despised Stanton. In the last days of the 39th Congress, at the opening of March 1867, the radicals moved to maximize the president's anger. Over Johnson's veto, Congress approved the Tenure of Office Act, forbidding any president from removing any official without the consent of Congress. It was a terrible piece of legislation, but the radicals knew the conflict animated the president and that he couldn't resist the fight. And five months later, on August, 5th, on August 5th, Johnson struck back, asking for Stanton's resignation. And with that, the ball was officially on. The House, pretty much on cue, produced 11 articles of impeachment, eight having to do with Stanton, who had barricaded himself in his office and refused to leave. And on March 5, 1868, the Senate meant to, to consider the impeachment of Andrew Johnson. Uh, the Senate meant to consider this is it, consider the impeachment of Andrew Johnson with the Honorable Ben Way, President Pro Tem of the Senate presiding. Not coincidentally, perhaps, in the absence of any vice president, Wade was also next in line for Andy Johnson's office.
I'll leave it to your next speakers to flesh out the story, that story and provide more insight and better analysis than I ever could. But let me leave you with this parting thought before we move on to questions. Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, uh, in the house of Abraham Lincoln's intellect were many mansions. Andy Johnson's intellect was not to be laughed at, but it was one room deep. And the consequences were tragic for himself and for the nation. Terrific, Howard. That's a tour de force. You really have uh, whetted our appetite for even more. So uh, we have a few questions and we'll have more I know. So one question is, and you perhaps have answered this implicitly, one person asked whether Johnson can be considered a demagogue. Uh, no, Johnson campaigned in 1860 in the, in, for the Democratic nomination in 1868. There was elements of, camp, of demagoguery to it. Uh, but I wouldn't say he was, he was unyielding. Um, he was, there was much mockery made of him wanting to be a king, wanting to be a demagogue. Thomas Nast uh, beat that drum pretty hard in his cartoons, but I did not find him demagogic, no. What was his relationship, albeit short, with, with Lincoln? How would you characterize it? <laughs> albeit short is the word, is the phrase. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I, I think they campaigned well together. I mean, Lincoln did ask him to be his vice presidential. I mean, I think Lincoln admired his courage in battle. I mean, he was. Uh, Johnson, you know, there are stories that Johnson slept on a bed of revolvers at one time when uh, when he thought the the uh, military instead, you know, the governor's office about to be overrun. Johnson was just raw courage. Um, but as I said, and it's, it's, it comes to me time and again, he simply had, he had no capacity for compromise. Um, and he had, I think what Lincoln would have found hardest about him was he had no sense of humor whatsoever. Lincoln liked to tell a joke. And Johnson was stony faced no matter what happened. And I think that must have made it hard for the two of them. But as the as his vice president, they had they had one meeting, when you think about it, on the you know on the morning on the afternoon of Johnson's uh, of Lincoln's assassination. Amazing this fellow had become president under that under that circumstance. Was the you, you mentioned that Mrs. Lincoln thought that Johnson had something to do with the president's assassination? Yeah. Was that a widespread belief at the time? It was it was wide enough. She pushed it fairly hard. I mean, she she was on uh, she she didn't hide the fact that she suspected that. Uh, and I and I think it became particularly rumored after he disappointed the radical Republicans. Uh, he made a lot of enemies very quickly when he did that. Um, so yes, but it, there was, of course, there's no serious uh, effort to, and I, you know, I, I think that if George Zadarod had not drunk himself into a stupor uh, and had tried to, uh, I think he would have had a hard time taking Andy uh, Johnson down. Johnson was a, was a rock of a man. <laughs> He's such a rock man. He returns the, to, 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 the, uh, to the Senate in 1872, um, serves one last turn. He dies during the course of the term. But he goes back, it's miserable conditions. He goes back to Tennessee, he gets off, he juts in a horse and he starts riding for four hours across uh, to get to Greenville. Uh, and the, the weather conditions are horrible and he died of exposure eventually, not, not then, but he died later of the exposure he suffered. So uh, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think Johnson, that's what Lincoln admired in Johnson. Can you tell us a little bit about what foreign nations thought of Johnson during the course of his presidency? What was the attitude of other countries toward the Johnson administration? I think the diplomatic corps found him coarse. 
uh, and uh, and and I, I think I you know I, I, I he did not have a particularly hard time with uh, with the British the French uh, the um, I would say I mean I didn't ex I, I didn't actually interesting question I didn't actually examine that um, I I do know that in Washington. Uh, he was he was considered um, a, you know a country rube, and and had no taste for diplomatic receptions or for that life. Lincoln didn't have much taste for it either, frankly. Okay. Yeah, but I can't really answer what diplomatic traffic was like on on, on Johnson. Lincoln, of course, was very sympathetic to to blacks in yeah. in the United States, obviously, and had you could argue deep friendships with Douglas, for example. Sure. Did sure. you talk a little bit about Johnson's attitudes toward, toward blacks and did he have a similar relationship with the leading uh, figures of the day not. in the black community? Had absolutely not. Uh, the, uh, I mean, when you, the contrast in that, you know, all that, that long, that all the, the, the weeping crowds outside the White House as Johnson is outside the hotel as Lincoln was dying and his body was brought back to the Capitol. Uh, there wasn't a. I don't think there was a, a, a tear shed in the in the in the Washington black community or the American black community generally, when African American community when when Johnson died. Um, he was simply, as I said, and I think he could never make the he could never make the empathetic empathetic. I couldn't pronounce that word. He could never make the empathetic connection uh, with his own history. You know, with having been a runaway. Uh, slave, in essence. I mean, to the extent that he was a slave to, to Selby for uh, for eleven years, he could just never make that connection. And 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 as he campaigned later on in eighteen sixty eight, it became quite evident that he was uh, he was um, and he was an open racist. There's just no question about it. Hmm. You mentioned Stanton, of course. Um, what was his relationship like with the rest of the cabinet? Thinking, you know, the, the, the team of rivals with Lincoln. What was the relationship generally between the? His strongest one was with the uh, with, with the Treasury Secretary, um, whose name is going to escape me for the moment. MC, <laughs> I apologize <laughs> for that. Uh, in whose office he worked for the uh, the first month. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't it wasn't all that bad. I don't think uh, Gideon Wells. Gideon Wells got off to a poor start with him, uh, but I think Wells eventually um, uh, thought that it was a, I mean, after all, he did, he, he did attempt to implement Lincoln's uh, terms of peace. Now he attempted to implement in his own terms and it's an, I don't make that, I didn't make that point earlier, but these people had to come to Johnson directly, personally for pardons, the planters, that whole planting class. I mean, that was, uh, you know, they had to, they basically had to bend, get on bended knee before him. I mean, that, that's what I, I mean, this is a whole thing about Washington, one of my theories, Washington as the, as the world capital of passive aggressive behavior. This, <laughs> this whole thing is kind of the world capital or, 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 or an, an amazing exemplar of passive aggressive behavior in a way. Uh, the, um, but, I, you know, I, I, I I don't think it was particularly a troublesome relationship with others than Stanton. Stanton simply, you know, dominated the other end of the world. Got uh, it. Yeah. And don't want to get you ahead of, of the other speakers, yeah. but just to talk a little bit more about the impeachment process, was it bipartisan, generally speaking? 
You know, it was interesting that the question that was asked the other day or the after the vote was taken the other day, um, I think I've maybe CNN or MSNBC, I can't remember which one. So one of the people said, well, this was the most votes ever cast for a for a, you know, impeachment. Well, there weren't as many states. <laughs> I, mean, yeah, right. I mean, Edmund Ross saved uh, saved Johnson Bacon by one vote. Uh, so so, yes, I mean, it was a. Uh, it. it it was an interesting question. You could argue that Johnson should have been impeached because he did violently, you know, he, he, he went directly against Congress um, and he, he ordered, uh, he fired uh, Stanton. He could not fire Stanton by the Tenure of Office Act. He was set up beautifully. Um, they knew their man, they knew what he was gonna do. He acted exactly according to script because he couldn't, he couldn't stop it. But as we've been told many times in the past uh, uh, a week or so, uh, this is not a jury, you know, uh, operating by, by 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 the usual rules, right. uh, and and it, it was a setup. It was a complete setup, and so Edmund Ross did the right thing. There's no question about it in my mind. I hope you'll get a better argument on the other side from some of the, from some <laughs> of your people to follow, but to my mind, it was the right thing. So. History, the treatment uh, in history of Johnson. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, people, I think, have focused more on him, obviously, in recent years with impeachment becoming more prominent. But generally speaking, could mm -hmm. you talk about that? Yeah, generally speaking, uh, as treated by history, he belongs in the Boulevard of Broken Presidents at the uh, at the National Portrait uh, Gallery. Um, well, what did he accomplish? Uh, you could argue. And I think reasonably enough that um, that by he did the right thing. I mean, he, his resolution of his the terms of peace they were Lincoln's terms of peace, and they would have been Lincoln terms of peace. Lincoln would have been much more nuanced in in in, in enforcing them. Uh, but well, let me let me just let me read one thing which I skipped over because I was running out of time. But sure. it's interesting. This is this is where. This is where history saw him in September of 1866, one year, one and a half years into his office. And this is from Harper's Weekly, um, quote, we've, and Harper's Weekly was the life magazine of its day. I mean, everybody read it at the time, whatever you want to say, since there are no national magazines. We've had four eminently critical presidential administrations, Washington's in which the constitution was first tested in operation, Jackson's in which the constitution was first seriously threatened, Lincoln's, which saw open rebellion against the Constitution, and Johnson's, in which it will be necessary to secure the peace of the country and the perfect allegiance of all its citizens, which has been obtained by military conquest. The effectiveness of Johnson's administration remains yet to be decided. Well, by then, in some ways, it really was, but it gives you a sense of, 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 of the spot in history that Johnson held at that moment. Uh, you know, Washington, Jackson, Lincoln, and Johnson. Uh, and, and I think what has dis what disappeared in Johnson's story, to me at any rate, was that 45 days was exactly what was going on in America when Johnson took, you know, in this barely reunited nation, when Johnson took over that office. Uh, so give him some credit for holding it together. Um, the, uh, give him, give him uh, F, F minus, is there something lower than F? I don't know. Give him an F minus minus for, uh, for, for his inability to see that he was being had by the, by the radicals. Uh, but 
that sense of the, of, of, of the centrality, the criticalness of administration disappeared. I mean, that's, and, and all you saw was this sort of failed clown-like president uh, who, was a, who was the butt of many, many Thomas Nast cartoons. Um, and in one, he's Othello, the other, he's a king, the other, these other things. Uh, so, I mean, basically all that fell away and what you had was the president who had missed, but for one vote being impeached. Um, and, and also that sort of, you know, what his contribution to the war effort disappeared to, everything disappeared with it. He just fell into this, I mean, Lincoln cast this huge shadow in both sides of it. James Buchanan, uh, whose elementary school I went to, so of course I speak with authority about, deserves to stay in that shadow. Um, I, think, I think Andy Johnson deserves to move out of it a little bit more. We have a question in the chat and that is, how would Hamlin have handled the first chapter in Reconstruction? Boy, what an interesting question. Uh, what a very interesting question. I do not have an answer for that. Uh, I, I would think that Hamlin would have been much more protective of the gains and of the gains meant to be conferred on the slave, former slave population. Um, I think it would have been much more protective of, uh, of, of against the, the Jim Crow laws that, that, that quickly formed, the black codes that quickly formed. Um, I think Johnson, I mean, Hamlin was an inherent, what you would call a liberal of the day. Uh, and, um, and he was a Maine man, you know, that's uh, mm -hmm. Joshua Chamberlain, Lawrence Chamberlain's territory up there. Uh, so, and he was, he was a nuanced man. That's the other thing, I guess, I hope I've made that point. Johnson had no nuance whatsoever. Hamlin was a much more nuanced man. Um, and Lincoln simply made the, you know, Lincoln, made the, consider, the, the, the determination that he could not win with them. Um, so had Hamlin uh, run and Lincoln lost, um, would have had George McClellan and you can play uh, what, you know, what, what would happen with history then too. Right, yeah. exactly. <laughs> Final question, what about the relationship with Grant? Uh, that's another good question. Uh, Johnson, I mean, yeah, J Johnson wanted to make Grant the Secretary of War. Uh, when he fired Stanton. Stanton wouldn't leave his office. So Grant was the Secretary of War, but not the Secretary of War. I um, mean, you know, I, th I, don't, I, I didn't get the sense it was, a, it, it was a troubled relationship, particularly any more than Johnson's relationship with others was, tro was troubled. Uh, I think Grant admired Johnson's effort to hold the uh, you know, Eastern Tennessee. Uh, and I think Grant was not in this way a deeply nuanced man either. And I suspect they, they had, you know, had some things in common. Howard, thank you so much. What a wonderful talk you've given us and what a great start to this series on the presidency of Andrew Johnson. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm flattered to be asked. Thank you for all of you who are there listening and uh, thanks to St. John's and thanks to you, Clark. It was great fun. Same here. Thank you so much. Take care. Okay.